Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Big Footy Bombercast, the grand final edition. You've got your host, uh, myself, Kiptastic. Joining with me is the usual host. He's taking a bit of a break from the responsibility. Ponsa34, how are you doing, Ponsa? How have you found the final series? I'm doing well, mate. I've enjoyed the fact that I've thrown it to you at the very last second and gone, do you want to host? Because I'll just cruise the background. Um, the final series is pretty good this year, I, I thought, I, apart from obviously the first week, but we've discussed that in earlier episodes. The Bulldogs, I, I was pretty filthy. They got all the way to the, the big dance. I certainly don't think they deserve to get past uh, Brisbane. But, you know, in the end, it was it was a good grand final for, uh, what, two and a half quarters. And then, well, actually, it was probably a good, good grand final for, for three quarters, really, because... I think Melbourne kicked three goals in the last minute. So up until that stage, it was a pretty competitive game. And then, you know, they just blew the Bulldogs apart, which was pretty disappointing from a neutral point of view. But at the same time, pretty satisfying to see the dogs get smashed in, in, in such a pathetic way on such a big stage. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Essendon fans who agree with you on that, Bonsa. I think even even with the um, even with the one-sided nature of the final quarter, you know, still seeing a team perform at that level... Um, even if it is a demolition, it's still pretty interesting. Also joining us tonight is Sporno for Pyro. Sporno, how are you? How did you find the grand final? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I really felt for the long-suffering uh, long suffering Demons fans, so it was really good to see see them get over the line. Oh, they didn't get over the line. They uh, you know, really seized the moment, and it was just a fantastic ride, and I really enjoyed the, the last, yeah, quarter and a half of the match. Yeah, absolutely. So go, going into the, the grand final and, and looking at it as a as a neutral party, uh, both of you, what was, the, what was the thing that you were thinking that would decide the game? What was the point of difference between the teams? Um, Bonsa, for you, that you felt would resolve the match? Yeah, look, I, I thought Max Gorm was probably going to play a bigger role than he ended up doing. I, I thought that the ruck department of the, the, the Ds was going to be the key because I thought if, if they could direct the ball to the Ds midfield... <laughs> get on top that that would go a long way to, to winning winning the uh winning the game because it, it sounds a little bit silly considering how deep the bulldogs went this season but outside their midfield and and the fact that josh bruce didn't play they're not a great they don't have great key, key position players i mean alex keith is all right but i, I don't i wouldn't have him in the, oh, the the top 10 key position defenders in the league and, and maybe i'm being a little bit harsh then and then you know they got josh shackey who yeah, again, I, I wouldn't have him in the top 20 key position players. I wouldn't have him anywhere near the, the top line of the, the key position players. So, so really, for mine, it, w- it was going to be, could Gorn and Jackson get comprehensively on top of Martin and English in such a way that, that the Bulldogs midfield weren't going to be able to use any advantage that they had in, in numbers? Because... The Bulldogs midfield, I, I still think bats deeper than Melbourne's. I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about James Harms and, and a few other Melbourne midfielders now being talked up as superstars because they won the grand final. But the reality is it's, it's Petrarca, Oliver, and then a bit of daylight. Langdon on the outside, I suppose, as well. But, yeah, so they're the two A-grades. So I, I thought the ruck was going to be the big challenge for the Dogs. And, and I suppose, to a certain degree, I was right in the end because, I mean, Luke Jackson in the middle, towards the end of that third quarter, did dominate, probably turned the game on its head. It it was just, yeah, I, I expected Max to, to be the man that, that sort of stood up. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, I did did place a, a bet on him to win the Norm Smith, and he got nowhere near it in the end. So that was probably uh, that was probably a sign that I shouldn't have done that. The second that I put it down, he was always going to struggle, I think. Yeah, you, you make some good points. I, I agree with you in terms of the ruck, and I think it's a big problem for the Bulldogs going forward. Uh, Martin's obviously closer to the end than he is the beginning, and English hasn't come on as well as I had. And if they can't have that ruck dominance against the teams that have the midfielders 
to match them, they're going to struggle, as we saw in, in our game in regular season where Draper um, took control of the game. Uh, Swanner, what about in terms of the midfield? Did you My, my initial impression with the midfield, as uh, Bonser said, was that other than the top two for Melbourne, that second string Bulldogs midfield of Trelaw, Dunkley, Smith would be too much for Melbourne. Uh, what were your thoughts with regards to the midfield battle and how it played out compared to how you thought it would? Yeah, I've, I've got huge respect for the the Bulldogs midfield. I think it's, you know, there's so many A-graders in there and I was there thinking that's that's where the Bulldogs are going to perhaps um, get the edge over Melbourne. And with, you know, there was a lot of talk going into the match. Are they going to target Max Gorn and things like that? And, they, and I thought with Beveridge having two weeks to plan for that match, I was a little bit surprised that they didn't really attack Max Gorn, as was sort of said in the paper. Then I think the young fella, uh, I've forgotten his name, just off the top of my head, was going so well that Max Gorn was just saying, yeah, you just stay in there. So I, I thought if if the Bulldogs were going to win it, it was going to be with their midfield because obviously their weakness is um, their back line and probably Melbourne's weakness is probably their forward line. So that was always going to be interesting. Was Melbourne going to score enough goals or, or could the Bulldogs stop the goals. Uh, so that was always going to be interesting for me, that the Bulldogs back line versus the Melbourne forward line was also going to be something interesting. And I thought, well, if Bulldogs midfield gets on top here, look out, this is going to be game on. What about you, Bonds? The other guy that, that I want to mention is one that I think has probably fallen a little bit under the radar uh, because obviously Petrarca dominated, Fritch kicked six, but Christian Salem had a ripping game as well. He, he had an, an amazing game, I thought. And for large parts of that game, I thought he had one hand of the Norm Smith medal before Petrarca ripped it ripped it away from him. I, I mean, in the end, he, he kicked a goal, which is great for a halfback you know, half-back flank running type. It's Nick Hines sort of role. He, he had 22 kicks, five handballs, but he laid seven tackles, seven marks as well. He was the second for the metres gained on the field. So, you know, Petrarca wow. had nearly 900 metres gained, but Salem, Salem had 640 and no one else got anywhere near him. And he had eight score involvements. So, wow. Which, it's just you just look at it and go, yeah, okay. Petrarca had, a, had an amazing game, but and so did Fritch. But, but gee, Salem's game just sort of floated under the radar a little bit. He doesn't seem to make errors either, does he? He's nice. just so with it when he's got the ball and kicking the ball, he just seems to be so accurate. He's just yeah. beautiful to watch. He's just such a silky player off that half back line, and he's almost like, I suppose, the opposite of Hind in in a way because Hind operates at this frenetic speed that that you sort of look at and go, does he know what he's doing when he's got the ball? Whereas Salem, he has that that quickness, but he's just silk. He just seems to be under control calm composed the whole time and and that's not taken away from nick hind because nick hind operates at a frenetic speed but he's still controlled but yeah they are very different players and if we could find someone who who just had that little bit of i suppose silk that salem that he seems that salem seems to have it would make our backline stand up so much better (laughs) it's interesting with, with regards to salem you look at what the bulldogs had in the first half with caleb daniel playing a similar role off half back and he was dominating in that first half and they actually started him on the bench in the, in the third quarter. Um, obviously, the Melbourne domination didn't start till later in the third quarter, but as Dale, um, sorry, as Daniel went out of the game and had less of an impact, you saw that Melbourne was able to take over and, and you know, you have Salem. And uh, I thought Viney and, and Brayshaw played really crucial roles as that second-tier midfield to really push them in that in that third quarter when the, when the going was hard and then allowed them to have, you know, that top class of Petrarca and Oliver get on top um, and just blow the Bulldogs away. 
Do you think the fact that the Bulldogs played that extra final and did so much more travel had an impact on the game, Sporto, or was it the two weeks should have been sufficient for them to recover? No, I, I don't think it um, had any effect on them. I think, you know, they, they got found out, you know, they, they'd played us, we pushed them. That could have been a lot closer, that match. Brisbane pushed them. Port Adelaide, as it turns out, you know, when you look closely, they don't really have a midfield. So no, no wonder Kane Corns is... Uh, trying to get more midfielders over there because once you get past uh, their big two in Port Adelaide. So I, I thought that the best side won and I think they sort of got found out on the big stage. And it's sort of really interesting though because, you know, I was thinking back in 2016, their victory is a bit like us winning in 1993. And then that didn't really eventuate till six or seven years later. So we're in that sort of six to seven year later window for them. And I thought that this sort of little era is going to be for them the next three or four years. So what about you guys? Do you think potentially this could be a little, you know, they're already talking dynasties, I know. What about you, Kip? Anytime, anytime a team wins a premiership, you're talking dynasty. I think there's been a lot of comparisons with the Bulldogs with Hawthorne um, and, and their era. They had the, the win in 2008, which in hindsight, it's probably a bit before their time. And then they went on to win three flags in a row. I've, after losing one in, in 2012. So I'm sure there's a lot of Bulldogs fans holding out hope for that sort of similar thing to happen for them. They'll go on to win the next three. Obviously, we don't want that. Uh, Melbourne, the core of that group is very young and could stick together uh, quite well. And with that, with the high end of, of Petrarca and Oliver and Gorn, obviously Jackson coming through, they're uh, going to have a lot of chance for success in the future if they keep that core together. I think they had eight players sort of around the 25 year. Uh, like Salem, Petrarca, Oliver, might be a, a year younger, I think. And then they had about eight players under the age of 21. So it was great to see. That, and they've set themselves up beautifully, I think. What about the fact that we've mentioned the Jackson and Gorn combination? Do you think that could have ramifications for the rest of the competition? You know, could we be seeing Draper and Brian being used in tandem? Is it is it going to set a trend, the, the two Ruckman trend, do you think? I think there's a tendency after a, a, a side wins a flag to try and copy what they do, but I don't see... I, I mean, the Bulldogs, okay, they had Martin and English, but they didn't play two Ruckman all year, really. English is... I mean, English did play forward, and who'd they have? Jordan Sweet or whoever, other, whoever the other bloke was playing Ruck. But I think Melbourne are in a pretty unique position. We're hoping to find ourselves in a very similar, unique position, but to have two quality Ruckman is almost non-existent in the AFL, and to, to play two quality quality Ruckman is even rarer. Uh, so so I think if sides go down that path, they, they're going to find themselves sorely lacking uh, the same impact that, that Gorn and Jackson have had for Melbourne. It, yeah, it's it's... It's just something that happens. As soon as a as soon as a flag is won, everyone looks at the side and goes, "Well, what makes them different? How do we copy?" Well, I don't think I don't think you can. I, I think I think that's probably. I don't want to sound harsh, but I, it, it feels to me when people start doing that, it's lazy analysis because okay, they have a point of difference, but just because they're different doesn't mean that's going to resonate around the rest of the league. But that's just yeah, my thoughts. <laughs> Gorn and Jackson work because both can contribute and can can play quite well forward. You need, you need to have that option because you can't just have your Ruckman, you can't just rotate your Ruckman through the bench. You run out because of limitations of interchange. So your Ruckman have to contribute forward. We've seen in, in the Essendon case, a lot of people want to see Brian and, and Draper together, but neither have shown strong forward craft yet. Draper obviously can take a grab, but his kicking is, you know, hit and miss. 
and Brian hasn't had that experience either, and he's obviously quite young. So it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see if they do try and develop their forward craft, uh, particularly uh, Brian in the VFL. I would imagine if we're going to play that way. Otherwise, it might not be something that we'll be able to copy as an Essendon team. Just before we wrap up on the grand final, uh, obviously Melbourne has a strong Essendon connection with uh, Hibbard. Uh, Melksham obviously didn't didn't play, and then the great Neil Danaher. Is that was that something that you were looking for? in the grand final, hoping that Melbourne would get up for, for those guys? I think everyone was sort of really hoping that they'd do it for Neil, weren't they? You know, And it was great to see that photo that came out on Instagram shortly afterwards that, of Neil. And, you know, Hibbo, I was really glad for him. So, yeah, definitely, definitely it was a, a added a bit of icing on the top of the cake for me. Yeah, look, I, I was hoping they'd win it for Neil because... Neil Dan, who has been a massive part of the Essendon Football Club as, as as well as his time in Melbourne. So that was, yeah, and it was nice to see Hibbard winning a flag. His celebration did bring a smile. And I mean, even Simon Goodwin, you know, he's had his time with us. So it was nice to have that little bit of an Essendon connection. But yeah, it, it's nice, but it probably doesn't mean a great deal because at the end of the day, they're, they're not wearing the, the, the red and black jumper, are they? Agreed. Moving on to award season, we had the Brownlow previous Sunday night before the grand final, and that was followed by the Crichton medal. Obviously, for Essendon fans, uh, they were watching out for how Parish and Merritt will go, and they did quite well, finishing very high up. So Parish uh, equal fifth, and Merritt in the, in the top ten. Bonser, what was what was your expectations for the night? Did did you hold out hope that uh, Parish or Merritt would steal a win, or were you pretty realistic about where they would finish? Well, I had money on them both to win, so I was hoping like hell that one of them would manage to steal it. But again, it, 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 I think it's probably a year too early for Darcy and, and unfortunately for Zach, even though this year we finally got the wins that he probably needed to, to sneak around. Though he, he now has a counterpart in Darcy stealing votes off him. So it would be interesting to watch those two moving forward. Um, and the interesting thing that I found, though, was even though that uh, Darcy did poll six votes more than Zach, Zach actually polled in two more games. So Zach polled in 12 games and, and Darcy only polled in 10. Uh, so so it's quite a, an interesting little little snippet, I, I thought, looking at that. And, and if you look across sort, of, across sort of the league, I reckon you – and I haven't done any stats on this, so – Somebody can have a look if they want. But I reckon Darcy, in terms of games polled, probably had nearly more three votes than anyone else because he averaged 2.6 votes a game when he polled, whereas Ollie Wines was only about, if I want to go off the top of my head, he was was about 2.2 votes. So, yeah, I think uh, Darcy probably polled more votes per game polled than anybody else in the league, which is just a little, little bit of a funny stat that I uh, that I uh, picked out of the results. It always makes it more interesting Brownlow night when you've got someone in the mix though, doesn't it? Whether it's um, those two boys or Joe back in 2012, it's always a bit more fun watching it when you've got a bit of skin in the game. Absolutely. And I think as you point out in terms of Darcy, I votes per game that he polled in, it show, shows the difference between his, his high points and his low points. Obviously he started to get more attention in some games later in the year and, and, had the tag that obviously would have cost him cost him votes uh, in those games. So that's just the next step of his evolution is to move on and, and be able to break that tag. Moving on to, to the Crichton, which occurred a couple of days later, uh, the ro- the re- top two was reversed there in terms of Essendon with Merritt taking out uh, top spot, his third Crichton, which I, I would say makes him an all-time Essendon great. 
um, followed by Darcy in second, and then Will Snelling in third. Any takeaways from the Crichton for you, Sforno? What was your thoughts on the on the top ten and, and the finishing places? It was, it was good to see the top ten. Uh, I've got to say, I was a bit surprised at the difference between uh, Merritt and Parish between first and second. I think it was like it was well over fifty points. It could have been close to eighty points difference, uh, which really surprised me. But then it was good to see Snelling come in at third. It shows that he's really doing the team things that is rated by the coaches. And then to see uh, Ridley and the package round out the top five. You know, I'm a big Jakey Stringer fan. and He's just exciting to watch. Well, I just in regards to Snelling, he did miss three games after the, the West Coast game with the, with the broken thumb. And if you go back into the Crichton thread on the board, uh, someone's done a breakdown of votes per game. And Snelling actually has higher votes per game than Parrish. So he played a full season, then he, he actually finishes second in that count. Uh, but we still get the the bit of the shocks about where he finished. I I, I had him def- as a definite top 10, probably more around the five area, but I don't think three is a unrealistic spot for him based on how the coaches see his role. He still gets that criticism from, from a lot of people that he doesn't deserve he doesn't deserve that higher praise. And there's still people who would, who would not consider him best 22. Bonser, what are your thoughts about that? Look, Snelling is absolutely best 22. And I think uh, I think in the very first one this year, when, when Jade and I were talking, I, the, the mention was that, that Snelling makes a good 15 to 22. And, and I think Jade made the, made the excellent point at the time that if we consider Snelling in, our, in that 15 to 22 bracket, then Jesus, our, our top 15 is going to be pretty bloody good. Because he has been excellent ever since we picked him up. I will be honest, though. I just don't see how he finishes third. I mean, traditionally, if you don't play every game in the Crichton medal, you do struggle to poll well, I suppose. And for him, if he played 22 games and had beaten Parrish in the in the best and fairest, I don't think anybody would have thought that was a realistic result. And, I mean, he's beaten Ridley. And, and, and I look at that and go... How did how did he beat Ridley? I I mean I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Ridley's a victim of his own own hype that we expect so much of him that if he doesn't deliver an A plus performance, we're all a little bit oh he was a bit underwhelming even though you know the bloke's 21 years old and is going to be a genuine superstar. But yeah, I mean look, I don't know what how I don't really know how that they do the votes. It doesn't really make sense to me that Stanley won. I have no issues with him coming third. If that's the way the coach saw it, that's fine. It's just, it's not how I saw our season. I would have had him probably, to be honest, maybe fifth behind Ridley and, and Jakey. But again, I'm, I was I was huge on Jake this year. I, I think that his season, despite the plaudits it's been getting, uh, has still been underrated. So it is what it is. And obviously, Stanley's rated very inter- internally. He's rated very highly, and he's obviously doing his role. And, and I can see all that personally on the field. I just don't know if he, for mine, had a better year than, than someone like Jordan Ridley or, as you've just sort of pointed out, even Darcy Parrish. Like, that, to me, just seems an insane situation. It does reflect that blue-collar ethos, though, that the coaches do seem to be pushing. He's the ultimate blue-collar player for us in the way that he's, his game seems to be more focused on, on the pressure acts and the tackles and, and playing the team role and rewarding that sends a message to the playing group that if you fulfill your role in the team as as the coaches outline it, you'll be rewarded in some way. The other one I, I do want to point out uh, is Jaden Laverty. I'm really happy for him. Top 10 in the Crichton medal. Played every game this year. Never played more than 10 games in a season. Really locked down that that back spot. 
I think he's a potential All-Australian in that spot, the way he played, the way he controlled contests, the way he used his body and his ability to to push on and really anchor that defence, even as an undersized player against players much bigger than him. Uh, Sporno, what do you see uh, Laverde going forward? Is his, is he going to be a key back for us or do you think we'll be looking for another strong key back to allow Laverde to play on second and third tools? I think he's uh, more of your second and third tools, but it was very encouraging. You know, I watched him every... I, I must admit I was sceptical at the start of the year. Uh, I do realise he played in the back line when he was in the juniors and everything, but I was still a little bit sceptical. And each week, he just amazed me. You know, I thought his season was uh, right up there with Ridley. So, you know, I, I know Ridley came fourth and uh, he came sixth. So there's not much difference there. But together, I think they're going to form a really good back line together if they can stay together and stay fit. I think uh, that some of the guys that we uh, recruited last year will end up as the main defender. And then guys like Ridley and Laverde will start doing their thing, whether that's uh, being the third man up or that sort of stuff, I think. The other thing I just want to mention, the other player that I was surprised to see in the top 10 was Tipper. Again, genuinely bemused by the fact that Tip has made it in the top 10. Now, he had a pretty good season for half a year, but then he, he did fall away fairly quickly. So some of these some of these results in the voting, and I don't know if I'm being harsh or not, but yeah, I, I don't quite see it the way that the coaches see it. And I, and I have just looked it up. They, they're given a rating out of five. So all players are given an overall score for their match performance out of five. They're also given a rating out of five for key bomber attributes that, when combined, give them a maximum of 25 votes per game. Only players that meet the set criteria for the match get played get votes awarded to them. So it seems a little bit wishy-washy for mine how we actually come up with these votes and leaderboards. And, and yeah, so as a result, I think we've seen some interesting interesting uh, results in the leaderboard this year. And, and I probably wonder why we don't just go back to the good old-fashioned you know, the coach and a couple of other blokes, you know, at the local footy, you hand out the vote card before the game, three, two, one, and off you go. Yep, I, I agree with you 100% there. It's a bit, it's a bit of overcomplication for overcomplication's sake. Pretty much. It, it seems like they've just looked at it and gone, oh, well, the AFL do a three, two, one system. We don't want to do that. We want to do our own special system. So let's, I mean, seriously, give a rating out of five for key bomber attributes. Yeah. What the hell are what the hell are key bomber attributes? I mean, for the last three years, you could say key bomber attributes have been turnovers and red time players. Like, <laughs> okay, moving on. The Premiership Cup has been awarded, but as we know, we're now moving into the real uh, finals time. Uh, Adrian Dodoro season. Uh, the jackets are out, and we're moving on to the uh, trading and drafting period, which we're all very excited for. Now, before we move on to potential targets, we have to talk about the people who have been not offered contracts or have retired. So uh, Hooker and Ambrose retired during the season. Uh, Zarakis was told he was not going to be offered a contract. He's looking for opportunities to play on uh, and hasn't announced his retirement yet. Uh, hasn't been much talk in the media about any potential uh, destination for him. And then there were the three delistings of Carl Johnson and Mosquito Bonsa. Any thoughts in particular on the delistings or the, um, Zara, because not being offered a contract. 
I don't think Zarak is probably realistically expected to get offered a contract because let's be honest, if he played next year, he'd be playing VFL football. He's got he's got literally no chance of making our best twenty-two next year, even if he was to play that defensive half-forward role that he played last year, much to our dismay and displeasure at the time. And and I don't see any other side picking him up. Maybe. I mean, maybe North Melbourne for an experienced head, but they have plenty of experienced heads. So I, I don't think anybody really needs him. If he wanted to go to the Gold Coast, yeah, maybe. But I, I think that uh, I think David's probably starting to come to the realisation his, his AFL journey is over. He's going to go down for me, not as an all-time great, but he's, he, I, I still think he deserves more plaudits than he gets. He's another Stanton in that he probably copped a fair bit of unfair, um, unfair abuse over the years because the blokes around him weren't good enough. There was nothing wrong with his performance. It's just we didn't have the cattle around him to, to really make him stand out or, or to support what he was doing. So as a result, you know, we struggled. And because we were, as a fan base, we got used to having superstars because he wasn't a superstar, you know, we sort of looked down on him. But in terms of the delistings, uh, Johnson and Mosquito, I mean, Mosquito... Has it come back to bite us? I don't know if it's come back to bite us. You can't predict a knee injury, so that, that's probably a little bit rough. Johnson, it was a bit of a speculative pick. I don't think uh, he ever really showed anything uh, once he was drafted to suggest he was going to become an AFL player. You take the punt. It was a late pick, so you take the punt. Ned Kale, I, I'm just amazed how how much of a player he became after he was delisted. He seems to have improved out of sight after he was delisted because from what I saw at an AFL level, he just never he just never had it. it. There was all this talk about his smarts and gets to the right spots, but he didn't do that at AFL level. And he wasn't quick. Now, I don't know as a small forward, you don't necessarily need to be quick, but you, you, you need to be able to show something at AFL level. And he never did. And, and I know that he showed some things at VFL level, but... There's a big step up between VFL and AFL. And every time he stepped up, he was left short, I thought. Uh, and to be honest, yeah, as I said, I, I was amazed how much of a superstar he became after he delisted, how much how much people were bemoaning his delisting. And I think I, I read at least three people saying, oh, he's going to go somewhere else and show us what we've missed. I'm going I'm to say right now, there is no way Ned Kale gets picked up by another club for next year. Nobody in the AFL is looking for a slow forward pocket couldn't get to the right spots at AFL level. It's just ludicrous to think that he'll be picked up because he showed something at VFL level. No chance. Well, it's interesting because at the start of the year, he was he was our back pocket. He was the one that the coaches had identified as, as to play on those those small forwards, which has been our Achilles heel this year is, is the small forward. And he only lasted two games before he was dropped, came back for one later in the season. And that was, I think... His uh, papers were probably marked there, even though he does seem to be a popular teammate. I believe he lives with McGrath and Ridley and, and, and the boys all like him. But it's just unfortunate, as you say, he doesn't have enough attributes to be to appear to be successful at AFL level. Swano, what are your thoughts on Mosquito? Obviously, it's it's very sad for us. We we saw him in the Dreamtime game and his smile just, just lit up lit up the grounds. Yeah. Do you do, well, you, do you think it's a missed opportunity like Bonster suggests, or aspects? it's just unfortunate? And it happens. You know, you're going to have your wins, you're going to have your losses. And Dreamtime, he was just so magic that night, and you know, helped us. I think all fall in love that little bit. You know, the 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 romance of football. But you know, he got a knee injury at the wrong time. You could obviously see he's got a lot of talents, and who knows? Maybe you know, three or four years down the track, once he gets that bit of maturity, 
wouldn't surprise me if he, you know, came back into one of the sides down the down the track once he's, you know, got to that 25-year-old sort of age. It's, I think it's been good that their their listings have been really good so far. I guess the big question mark now is, does Marty Gleeson get another year? Does Clark get another year? Uh, we've got Kelly. It sounds like Kelly's coming in from Adelaide. What are your thoughts there, fellas? Based on the listings, it seems we have six main list spots. I believe that Snelling will have to be upgraded with his two-year contract. He'll even with the extended rookie list time, it, it, and it, he's finished third, third in the BNF. I think it's time that he's upgrades the main list, even though it, it, that distinction doesn't mean that much anymore. Kelly seems to be a sure thing to be coming in, so that's another spot, which leaves four spots on the main list. We do only have three draft picks of of any value with the first rounder and the two thirds. Uh, you did mention you mentioned Gleason and Clark. I think Gleason, with the Cali acquisition, is probably on very very thin ice, and Clark depends on whether we get another midfielder in. I know there's there's talk about Dunstan. I think it's as much about him bringing Essendon up as anything Essendon suggested. But I don't think that's a bad necessarily the worst option. I think he would be an upgrade on a Clark. Bonsa, what are your thoughts in terms of who we should be targeting? I think it was Ant that said earlier in the week that, that Dunstan is, is very much a no-brainer. He's going to be midfield depth. and I, I don't know if he's best 22, but he obviously, I mean, look at his, and, and uh, the Brownlow's not the be all end all, obviously, but he had a, an incredible result in the Brownlow for a bloke that's getting delisted. And there's talk about his, his, his spread from the contest isn't, uh, isn't great and, and his defensive pressure is, is very poor. And that's why the Saints got rid of him. He, as a player now, is going to have to be aware that that's his weakness. So he seemed to think in the in his exit interview that he was unfairly dealt with. And for comments he's made, I think that he believes personally that his defensive efforts aren't as poor as what St Kilda would have you believe. So it would be an interesting pickup because I'm not sure if he's best 22, but why not take a punt? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And just on Clark and Gleeson, they're actually both on the rookie list at the moment. So... Uh, even if we were to drop them, we're not going to get any more main list spots. And I think we might be able to keep them both there on the rookie list for another year because I think they both got downgraded at the end of last year. Gleeson definitely did. I'm not sure about Clark because he's been in and on and off the rookie list for a while now. So, yeah, I, I, I also like the acquisition of, of Kelly should he come across because it, to me that means that, that Jordan Ridley's not going to have to play that lockdown defender role that we saw him play at times this year. I, I think Ridley's the best kick in our side and I'd nearly go out as far as saying Jordan Ridley is going to be the best kick in the AFL in a very, very short period of time because he is that good by foot. It is ridiculous. And if we could get him playing less one-on-one lockdown defensive roles and more of that Alex Rance style float across, impact the, the contest, and, and then use the ball the other way, we're going to be so much better off than, than by having him go one-on-one. And, and I know he's very good one-on-one, and I think he's actually the number one player for, for one-on-one contests. So, you know, you could argue we're robbing Peter to pay Paul, but I think if you get Kelly in to, to play that role, it, it just frees up Ridley. And just with his amazing boot, it just makes us so much more potent coming out of the back line. And other than that, I'm not too sure what else is left on the table in terms of free agents. There was talk about Ben King, but he's not out of contract till next year. So I don't think there'll be any chance. Jordan Clark's going 
home, it seems. There's, there's speculation today, today that we're, we're going after Ben Long, but Stephen Savani said on Trade Radio, and I, I tend to agree with him, that I think that's based more on his name than actually any interest that we have in him. Um, I certainly hope that we're not going to sell the farm for him because I'm one of those ones that don't rate him. But, yeah, but I mean, other than that, it's, it's pretty slim pickings this year, really. I mean, George Hewitt's going to Carlton. Chair is going to Carlton. What else is there? Mason Cox? I mean, if you're desperate, but I don't think we are, are we? I think I think Trade Radio is desperate because there's so little options to move. Every All the big names throughout the year that they've speculated, signed Merritt, Cripps, all, all, those, all those players that potentially could have could have moved or signed on. Just on, on Clark and Gleeson, both, as you say, both are on the rookie list. But with our success, recent success with mid-season draft and supplementary players, so you've, your Snellings, your Durhams, uh, Waterman, even even Baldwin, you know, after after that draft period, I think we will like to have that flexibility to be able to take players uh, in those in those selections. Obviously, with the the COVID lockdowns, there's a lot of players with uh, who haven't had as much exposed form that might slip through the cracks. Uh, Durham seems to be one that's that's done that um, in the previous year. And we seem to have got a gem from that. So I think that's what that's why I'm a, a little more bearish on on Gleeson and Clark staying on the list. I think they'll want that flexibility. Uh, Sporter, any any thoughts from you regards to the trade? I know that we, we did see, we did inquire about Roses from Gold Coast as a small forward, which a lot of people do agree is one of one of our areas of concern. From my point of view, it's good that we seem to be targeting players to, to fit those fit those areas of concern. As, as Bonsal said, Kelly, to play that lockdown role, we've gone after a small forward to deal with our small forward depth. Is there any other areas that you feel uh, we should be looking at in terms of trading players in to fill, or should we just go to the draft as much as possible? I think it's a year to go to the draft. We've got pick 11, which will blow out to pick 13. And, you know, uh, where we have been pretty good in recent times is picking up some good talent with those later picks. So I think this year, definitely go to the draft. Uh, And they've, like you said, they've targeted people like Kelly for those specific roles, which will then free up Ridley. Uh, It sounds like, uh, they're pretty switched on and they're all on the same sort of page there with, with our leadership in the coaching box and with drafting and recruiting. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? My final thoughts, are, uh, if if you look at our list at the moment, it's probably in a stronger position as it's been in a very long time. And I think the only way forward for us to continue to strengthen that this off-season is through the draft. I, I, would, I would hate to see us trade our picks this year. And the other thing to keep in mind, I think, for the trade period moving forward, because I know a lot of people are now talking, trade the future first, trade this, trade that, because of the Davy twins and all that. That's still 12 months down the track. We, we, we don't know what's going to happen. If you look at Collingwood, Collingwood, to me, is the perfect example of why you do not trade future picks for father-son points unless you know you're going to be an absolute superstar side. Because they traded as a middle-of-the-road side last year. They've now fallen down to pick two or pick three or whatever it is. It's highly likely they could have got Dacos and kept their first-round draft pick. So, you know, I just I don't want us to be end up this time next year have, you know, the, the possibility to get both Davy twins and have kept our first-round pick but we've blown it because we traded it this year in a fairly short, short-sighted short manner. It's just my opinion anyway. I agree with you on that. Also because, as has been often raised, Ben King 
is out of contract next year. If we trade our first round this year, then there's very little chance we'll have the currency to get him if he was available there. I think the other thing that that's really come through in, in the postseason interviews, particularly from Rutten, is that the coaching staff really see there's a lot of natural growth and development on this list. They haven't squeezed all the talent out of the list yet. There's so many players such as, you know, your Cox, your Perkins, your Reed. Jones has still got more more to develop. You've got players like Baldwin and Ayer and Brand. We saw Caldwell for three games, and the, the way the coaches talk about him suggests that he could be as good as any of our midfielders. So there's a lot of natural development left on this list. I don't think we need to be selling necessarily selling the farm for anything at this stage. No, exactly right, mate. Exactly right. Well, that wraps us up for this evening. Thanks for being on the podcast, Sporno. Thanks for having me. And Bonsa, thanks for uh, allowing me, in inverted commas, to host. Thanks for stepping under the bus that I just pushed you under, mate. <laughs> That's all right. I'm as flat as a pancake, but I, I still think I've got through it. Uh, and also big thanks to our editor, Beerfish, um, 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 who's been um, doing the editing um, all year. Um, um, done a great job, especially with me and all my ums. Um, hopefully, Beerfish, <laughs> I've done a better job for you tonight. So um, signing off episode 19 of the Big Footy Bombercast. We'll see you hopefully for a pre-draft special with draft specialist EDPS um, and cut. Right on, mate. Good job.